Welcome back to Enhanced Investor. Today is Monday, March 5th, 2018, and we are here for our live Q&A. We have Adam and John coming from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, we'll do a quick introduction and then get right into the questions. So go ahead, guys. Hey, guys, this is Adam. Uh, we are live. Um, I've got John here with me. John was an administrator with Goldman Sachs. Uh, he's now up here with me. We're both graduate students at Harvard University. We're looking forward to chatting with you. Hi, guys, John. Just so you can put a voice to uh, what we're about to say, but Adam gave me a nice introduction this evening. All right, so let's get started with question number one. Uh, what are the do's and don'ts regarding networking introductions for finance roles? Um, suggestions on how to approach and have a good chance that uh, the person that may be interviewing you uh, will be willing to help you out. Uh, either rec recommendations for intern jobs or put you in touch with somebody who can get you a position. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take that one. Um, I get a lot of messages, you know, both directly to me and in the career section about this. So I think I'll do a more specific um, introduction to this. But I think more specifically, it's it's really show passion for the company of that person you're reaching out to. Be specific as possible. Um, you know, if you're reaching out to someone in equity research and you want to be in equity research, let them know that. Um, I think more general requests for you know, I need a job or let me get quickly deleted. Um, I think really the best thing to do is to try and find someone with common ground, right? Maybe family, close relatives, um, educational alumni, alumni from your current firm. If you're looking to move to a different firm, um, cold emails are fine. I would just um, really try to you know dig into that network. Um, LinkedIn is okay as well. I think really I've heard that it's proven that if you have a large network with more weak relationships, it's got a better probability of something working out with success rather than a small network with just strong relationships. Um, people that you just have some common ground with, they might be able to you know, reach out to you or someone else, you know, to try and create that web effect. Um, you know, try to include your resume in these, requests. you know, be sincere, be genuine, and, you know, just attach it, you know, just as a reference. Um, you've also got some interest in some people that are trying to move internally with the I think that's a tough thing to do. You know, if your current manager doesn't know the, um, and you're trying to do that secretly, it's, it's a kind of a tricky situation. So what I would recommend doing is, you know, putting your time, um, you know, perform well, and then have the conversation with your manager when he's more willing to write your recommendation or sign off on your move. Um, because most likely, you know, and especially at larger, more prestigious firms, you're going to need that. Um, but again, you know, keep the expectations low when you're, well, you know, the more people you reach out to, the better your chances are taking one of those recommendations. But um, I would also recommend researching the person who you're reaching out to, make it as personalized as possible. You know, if they have research interests at, at a school or, you know, they have articles written about them or more company-specific news, um, that can make that more personalized and more of an intimate email. Um, they're going to be more likely to respond to you. And again, more general, just, you know, I need a job or look up for a job, they're just going to roll right over and delete that. So try and be specific, you know, show your passion for the company and the role and, you know, you should have a good uh, outlook for success there. That's a great answer. All right, let's move on to question number two. This one's going to be in a few parts, so we'll just go through it part by part here. So question number two, I'm not a day trader per se, but in 2017, I was a pretty active trader, sometimes buying stocks on a daily basis. How can I do my taxes? That's part one. Okay, so 
very few people uh, qualify as, as traders. So if you're an investor in, in the eyes of the IRS, um, <clears throat> you're going to account for your gains and losses on form 8949, as well as uh, schedule D. And your expenses are gonna fall into a relatively undesirable category of miscellaneous itemized deduction, which means you can't claim a home office deduction um, you're going to have to depreciate your equipment, such as your laptop, your cell phone, router, uh, over a number of years instead of all at once. And on your Schedule A, your investment is combined with other miscellaneous items, uh, items such as your, like your, your tax prep. And you can write off only the amount that exceeds 2% of your AGI, which is your adjusted gross income. All right. Uh, part two, can I identify myself as a sole proprietorship? Um, that, that question depends upon how many. Um, so really what qualifies you as a in the first place, um, 20 hours a week and roughly a thousand short term trades a year. Uh, that's. That's a substantial amount of time and, and trade frequency of trading that'll get you spend 30 hours a week and make 5,000 short-term trades every year, then the IRS should agree with you that you are in fact a sole proprietor, that you are a day trader. Um, and if you choose, you know, you could actually be both a trader and investor. So just be sure to segregate your long-term by identifying them, you know, as such in your records on the day that you buy in and you could populate all of that to a spreadsheet also depending upon your broker specifically if you use td ameritrade or e-trade they keep a log of all of your trades so it's easy to populate that as well and export for uh, tax purposes all right so let's go into part three i am a day trader and have nine thousand dollars of losses from 2017 I understand I can claim up to 3,000 of those losses and the rest will carry over to 2018 or those those taxes for the 2018 year. Does that mean I will be able to claim the full $6,000 of losses during 2018? Or would switching to uh, market accounting or mark to market accounting be something beneficial for me given the 9K losses in 2017? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I think that this is going to be as comprehensive an answer that I can, um, if you qualify as a trader, as I kind of outlined, uh, you know, talking about 5,000 trades 30, you know, over the course of a year and 30 hours per week, then the IRS is going to recognize you as such. And they're going to make you a deal under normal circumstances. When you sell a stock at a loss, you get to write that amount off. But if you buy the same stock within 30 days or you know before or after you sell, the IRS considers that a wash uh, and you basically have a, an accounting nightmare to deal with. So fortunately, yes, if you want to become what's called a mark-to-market trader, that means you'll automatically be exempt from that rule. And how that works is basically on the last year of trading or on the last day of the year of trading, you essentially pretend to sell all of your holdings if you have any, even though you still hold the stocks, you book all the imaginary gains and losses 
as of that day for tax purposes. This is industry-wide. And then you begin the new year with no unrealized gains or losses, as if you had just bought back all the shares that you pretended to sell. So being a mark-to-market trader has another advantage. Normally, investors can deduct, as you, you know mentioned, they can only deduct around $3,000 um, or $1,500 in net capital losses in a given year. But mark-to-market traders can deduct basically an unlimited amount of losses, which is a plus in a really awful market or a really bad year of trading. Um, as a mark-to-market trader, you should report your gains and losses on part two of the IRS form 4797. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot more we could go into um, in a specific tax section, if you'd like. Um, and as always, feel free to direct message myself or John if you need any help with that. All right, so part four of this question here. I uh, Let's see, where is it hiding? I am strictly a day trader and rarely hold positions overnight. Does electing mark-to-market affect any other forms of income, such as earning a paycheck from a full-time job or being an independent contractor? Well, that's really easy. No, it does not. Fantastic. Um, you, can, you can have another job and uh, you can work part-time or full-time so long as you are establishing the frequency of trading, uh, short-term trading, the IRS will not ding you on that. All right. So let's move on to number three here, discussing market cycles. Uh, we'll read through it, and then there's just the basic version that we'll have pasted in chat here. Imagine a novice trader like myself trading for one year. The market is bullish with stocks rising 80% of the time for that year. Because uh, my perception and short experience in the market has always been going up, I haven't ever experienced or seen a bearish market behavior with sudden flash crashes, drops, etc. Yet that creates a distorted vision for myself and a, dis a distorted perception of the market. Basically, what stages should I look for? What market cycles should I look for to prepare myself for that bear market that I haven't experienced in real time? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, actually. Um, you know, the first thing I want to say is over the last, you know, um, five, six, seven, eight years, it's become, you know, pretty easy to pick winners, right? I mean, the trend has been, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. So um, when volatility begins to come back into the market, it's um, you know more difficult to you know go back to fundamentals and, and pick you know some long-term wins, right? I mean, when you look at you know, the mean PE of the S&P 500, it's historically 15. Currently, it's trading at 25. because you know, we've had a lot of company over the last few years where you know they're taking advantage of low interest rates. You know, they're buying back shares outstanding. They're making their companies look more attractive by you know raising their per share price. Um, that those overvalued companies, well, seemingly overvalued companies, make it harder to um, you know, look at winners for the future. So, I mean, it's an interesting question. But again, you know, it's we've seen markets being cyclical in nature where, you know, there's textbook signs where there's going to be turnarounds. But again, you know, the best advice I can give is, you know, is go back to core fundamentals and um, understand the economics behind, you know, these decisions that are going to affect sectors and are going to affect specific equities, right? I mean, we mentioned it last time, and we'll mention it again, and you got to look at manufacturing data numbers, you got to look at employment numbers, you need to look at consumer confidence, right? These are all gauges of, you know, gener generation of revenue behind these equities. 
Um, and if they're dropping, you know, that, that's a signal that, you know, it might be time to uh, take another look. But also on, on the flip side, you know, if, like we've seen in the beginning of this year where 97% of companies in the S&P 500 are reporting you know, revenue increases, um, you know, that's something to consider too as something that might be too good to be true, right? So um, there's contrarian views, there's, there's long-term views, but um, interestingly enough, you know, a lot of the large impact come from you know, Fed expectation on interest rates and inflation consideration as of late, right? So I think those, those are things to gauge going forward that can, you know, the uncertainty behind these and the Fed expectations are also terms for, um, you know, our looks going forward and, and maybe, you know, contrarian views from that perspective also. Yeah, and as far as you know, the mentioning of the, you know, the crisis of two thousand eight, the subsequent recession, um, and the overall recovery, as it you know relates to trading, the question part of the question was you know the perception of the distorted of the market given the limited time for you've engaged in trade, that's totally understandable. So perception and intuition don't typically. Um, the best returns because there's no fundamental or technical analysis behind the trade. So, you know, and that's one side of the brain. This is behavioral economics at its best. The portion you need to access um, and kind of one of the reasons why we're here is that, you know, you need to access the logic and reasoning uh, side, which again is going to help you with the technical and fundamental analysis. And that's why we have, you know, all these analysts to help it's why we're available. Um, you know, we, we'd like to make ourselves as available, you know, schedule permitting. <laughs> um, you know, and as for the crisis, there were very clear indicators that were um, the increase in subprime mortgages increased by, by a factor of four from 2003 to 2006. Um, mortgage fraud occurred on a regular basis uh, because of the ninja loan. So no income, no job, no assets. And uh, <laughs> a credit card and mortgage default, you know, in 2007. Um, as for the velocity for which the market crash precipitated after the OLA of Lehman Brothers, OLA stands for Orderly uh, Liquidation Authority. Um, uh, that, was, that was mostly contagion, what happened after Lehman, but contagion due to the correlation of complex products that no one could appropriately value. Um, there's no amount of capital requirements that a bank could hold that could stave that off. Um, and what occurred after the crash was QE, which is quantitative easing, right? So we're talking about the recovery. Capital injections made by the Fed in attempt to stave off a depression, yet 0% interest rates and unemployment insurance for 56 weeks still wasn't enough because the credit market was frozen. So from a monetary standpoint, um, you know, the, their tool chest was essentially exhausted until the banks lending. And once the banks started lending again, business, the business cycle started to pick up again. It was easier to trade again if you were going long. Now there are products now it's, you know, it's very difficult to short bank stocks, but there are products now that you can you know, you can go bearish and, and we'll discuss those ETFs later, um, you know, later in the segment. All right. Question number four here, talking a little bit about backtesting. Um, we've read that a lot of the stocks follow the S&P 500 about 80% of the time. Do they also follow other major indexes like the Russell 2000, Dow Jones, 
uh, NASDAQ. How does that all work? Yeah, so I guess I guess to begin, um, now for those who are less sophisticated, you know, if you buy, you know, a spider or an ETF, you're buying the index, which is, you know, a cluster of equities, or you can buy a single stock, right? There's a difference there. Um, usually you could use the yeah, the ETF or the Spider Fund as a benchmark against your equity investment to see how it's performing versus the index. You know, if you bought the index, you know, SPX or the beginning of uh, January to the end of January, you would have done very well, right, for the earnings season. Um, you know, for example, the difference if you look at you know, I'm investing in retail companies and, you know, there's a retail called XRT. Um, the reason why I would look at both is if there is, um, you know, some type of price drop in the company that I'm following, let's say I'm looking at Lululemon. Um, and I want to see, you know, why did my, my company drop a few percentage points in one day versus uh, the ETF? Maybe there was a, you know, a, a um, defect in some of the clothing, right? So it would, it would quickly enable me to see if, if it was something that was specific to the equity I'm invested in or it was the um, retail market overall, such as maybe consumer spending or volume drop across the board, right? So that's a core difference between the two and why you would want to follow a benchmark index as well. Yeah, and so to, to kind of, you know, take it even a step further, kind of a more micro look at, at what John was just talking about, um, you guys all know about uh, USO and UCO, right? United States Oil and UCO is the, the 2X on that, it's the underlying ETF um, to USO. And so you've got ETFs also, say yes, my favorite. Um, that's your three times financial services pool. Um, and they do have, they, they have corresponding uh, you know, ties to, to the underlying of all the big banks. Um, so if you hear about, um, if you hear about infrastructure deals, you know, there, there are people, there are big banks that are financing. Um, you know, it's all connected in the supply chain. Almost every major sector, whether it's healthcare, tech, financial services, retail, every single one has a corresponding ETF. And that's not necessarily attached to, you know, to the S&P 500, or the NASDAQ, which is, you know, would be QQQ, or, you know, the Dow. Um, when you hear that the market, you know, gone up 400 points in a day, or the market crashed 800 points in a day, they're all referencing the average. Um, you know, and, and just because it's, it's, it's something that we hear, I, um, so I think it's, it's wise to kind of note this, now, one of the ETFs that, that people confuse most often are the gold miners, which is a GDX and GDXJ, which do not pair to spot gold movements. And the question is why? You know, I'm in JNUG or I'm in Nugget. Why is this moving in the opposite direction? Well, because those, the GDX and the GDXJ are gold mining companies, um, which are, you know, have operational costs some of which are just, you know, oil. Oil accounts for 40% of all mining company costs. Then you also have labor, capital equipment, chemicals, you know, along with hundreds of other inputs to supply chain, as well as geopolitical notation. So, you know, depending upon the volatility within the region for which the, the minerals being mined, you're going to see that, um, you know, reflect. And, and that it's a basket of companies, right, in, in one index. And that, that, you know, you'd have your gold index there. So, if you just want to trade gold, you know, go straight for gold futures, right? Or GLD. But if you if you really want to get into that's another that's another opportunity where you really have to check out the PEs um, and check out the the political uh, situations 
relative to GDX and GDXJ because some of these companies, um, you know, are ex exploration companies as well. They haven't even turned a profit. So you have to, you know, watch out for that. Absolutely. And as we talk about analyzing these ETFs and analyzing markets as a whole, when we're when we're discussing backtesting and going back and trying to find that data, should we consider analyzing old markets? How far do you go back where the data that's there is just obsolete? Well, this was this was a really good question. Um, it's a really good question and has a relatively simple answer. There were indicators back in 2000, 2006, right, that we've discussed before. Um, subprime loans relative to mortgages were one. Um, the rate at which CDOs and CDSs were, you know, were being acquired uh, by, by one originating bank to another hedging bank, and all of that um, kind of being correlated in a way. Um, the reason why I bring those up and the reason why those, those are important products to remember are because they affected the entire global economy. They, they affected every single index worldwide. Um, and now if you take a look at, at the consumer confidence, the employment rate, the interest rates that we see today, and if you said, if you took a look at the housing market, if you took a look at the private credit market, you took a look at the national debt, subprime loans for autos, which is really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, no one should be paying 25% for an auto loan. Um, and then also student loan debt. Those are levels that you're going to want to pay attention to. Um, because if you, if you check out where we are today versus where we were, um, in 2004, 2005, you're going to start seeing a rapid increase in every single one. Um, and remember student loans, it didn't always exist the way that they exist. Um, and, and the federal government is tied to, I think it's like 1.2, 1.3 trillion, something like that. And the school has the, you know, there's no, uh, there's no liability and the federal government has no liability for the schools. Um, and as I said, in, in our last uh, Q and a private credit card debt, uh, has already reached an all time high and we're seeing defaults on, on, on credit card debt, uh, higher than what was, you know, precipitating before the crisis. So all of those back testing you know, outside of a stock, those are the major macroeconomic, um, you know, factors that you could take a look at week in, week out, and you can see if a situation's, you know, getting better or if it's getting worse. All right, let's shift gears here and talk about the OTC market, our nice pink sheets. Would you recommend trading OTC stocks? Um, yeah, I'll, again, it's going to depend on the sophistication of the type of trader, but I mean, I'll, I'll take it one step further and talk about, you know, derivative instruments. Um, you know, these are excellent ways to try and, you know, take advantage of changes in interest rates and equity markets, you know, around the globe, um, currency exchange rate shifts, right? You know, changes in global supply and demand for commodities, agricultural products, 
right? precious metals, energy products, um, oil and natural gas instruments, right? So, I mean, if you are sophisticated enough to understand these instruments, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that that can be beneficial. You know, reducing market transaction costs, right? There's less cash outlay, you know, use of leverage, you know, in continuance with margin constraints. Um, you know, and most importantly, they're really used as hedging solutions, right? By, especially by, they have massive uh, sheets. You know, if you're long, you know, maybe 10 year treasury, um, you know, on a bank balance sheet, you might, you know, buy or sell at an interest rate swap right off the back of that to try and hedge your transactions. You know, they might book trades in opposite directions. Um, so again, depending on, what was the question? The question was recommendation. Uh, depending on, again, your level of sophistication, sure, they're excellent instruments um, to try and, you know, capitalize on laying less cash, but they're mostly used as hedging solutions. Again, you're going to need some cash if you want to exercise options, but, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of benefits to it. And, and depending on each person's unique situation, you know, I'm happy to you know, discuss this even further. Side, if you want to send me a message, we can, we can go that way as well. There's a lot of different instruments from, you know, FX forwards, um, to interest rate swaps, to you know, equity options. There's a lot of different areas, you know, in the OTC market that uh, can be beneficial depending on what you're looking to, you know, to invest in. Fantastic. All right, let's hop into another one here. Swing trading. What is your long-term approach to swing trading or investing? Yes, you want to start that? Yeah, I just again, that's. Um, you know, long-term investing and swing trading in different things. I think, is this the same question that we're looking at here? Like yeah. The famous trader? Yeah, the famous yeah. trader, yeah. Um, you know, to, to go a little further into this question, I think it was asked that, you know, there was a famous trader who looked at the GDP of China, who looked at detailed analysis of stable sectors in the country based on rising interest rates or falling fundamentals, you know, investing in top stocks of a specific sector, right? What that is as a whole, that's really, that's value investing. That's what Warren Buffett might do. That's what someone like Peter Lynch might do. And they're looking at fundamentals and they're looking for, you know, long-term sustainability. Now, that is very different from swing trading, right? That's looking for a long-term look. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with you looking at, you know, the world's largest GDP like China or, um, you know, looking at, you know, currencies and commodities that are more tightly correlated. Um, really, what you want to understand is you want to understand core fundamentals of the economy and also specific stocks that you're looking at. Right. I mean, if you're, you know, one reason that the U.S. rates are unlikely to move quickly or too high is because they're so poor. world economies like the Bank of Japan. Right. So the one thing to understand when you're looking at value, the economies of today are so tightly correlated. Right. I mean, you know, the Bank of Japan, the yield curve policy is so tightly correlated with the U.S. and, and interest rate decisions from Canada versus, you know, the eurozone. So it's it's understandable to look at not only the U.S. economy, but understand what's going before you can determine that long-term outcome. But I think that's the biggest difference between looking at, you know, fundamentals and looking at core economics as well. Yeah, and, and, and just to add to that, we were law school, you know, from a fiduciary standpoint, um, a fiduciary responsibility straight to the beneficiary. If we're, if, if you're looking at... <clears throat> Uh, swing trading, you, you, you might be more geared towards a contrarian uh, type of view. That's, those are the companies you're going to look for. But for long term, you know, companies that, are, that have, the, have the ability and, and will have the propensity to yield trillions of dollars in revenue 20 years from now, 25 years from now, uh, on a global scale, 
a lot of those companies are tied into ESG, you know, environmental, societal, and, and, and governance um, companies that kind of uh, preach environmental responsibility, social responsibility, and, and proper governance of, of their boards. Um, you know, it started with SRI, which is, you know, social responsibility investing, socially responsible investing, pardon me. Um, and, and so those are definite long-term outcomes, you know, something that uh, is going to be a new wave for the, for the next generation. All right, we'll move on to the next question here. Very simple, yes or no, uh, with a little explanation. Could you organize a macroeconomics class or webinar for enhanced investor? Absolutely, I can. Um, I think that, uh, you know, that's, that's something I'm, I'm more than willing to do. Uh, fiscal policy, fiscal policy, monetary policy, speaking about, um, and I have absolutely no problem, um, you know, holding, holding a class or webinar just on that. Um, of course, I'd like to gauge how many people actually want that, but we could hold a, uh, hold a quick poll on Discord on our platform to see how many people are interested in that. I'd be happy to facilitate Fantastic. All right. Number nine, going into a little bit more of the indicator side of trading. What indicators do professional traders typically use on a live trade desk? Um, and from, from the user who wrote this question, I'm curious how a former Goldman Sachs employee approaches day trading on the technical analysis side. Okay. So this is Adam. I didn't trade at Goldman. John did. Um, and so John will will speak on this, uh, yeah, but uh, it'll it'll be it'll, uh, from a proprietary standpoint, um, you know, and in compliance, really can't go into uh, <laughs> the nuances of the technical analysis that that Goldman does. Um, that wouldn't be legal. Uh, so uh, what we can, what I can say. And I, I know this for a fact is that big banks, especially live trade desks, deal in multi, uh, multi-factor, multi-variable models that have thousands of observations. And thanks to AI and algorithms, sometimes it's up to a human uh, whether or not to, to actually push the button. Um, I know that this occurs at uh, global hedge funds all over the world. They even have people that uh, trade right here in the U.S. overnight from 7 o'clock at night until you know, 7 a.m., 8 a.m., um, and they monitor uh, macro and micro regulation prudential uh, types of movements. Um, and if, if anyone out there is a bit fuzzy as to what macro and micro prudential regulations entail, we could discuss that in the macro class. Um, but I, I think that, uh, you know, I'm going to let John say a few sentences here, but from a, from a legal, you know, kind of protect Goldman here. Yeah, I think just, just um, as John's speaking, just from, from my perspective, as, as Adam mentioned, for science reasons, I can't really go into details of, you know, how the firm makes money. But um, I think it's uh, important to understand there's a difference you know, with the Goldman Sachs asset management that does, that's a buy side, right? So that's a more 
generating revenue for the firm in terms of you know outlooks and investing directly versus you know Goldman Sachs Bank, which is the the investment banks, you know the sell side, which which is the side I was on, that's recognized as a dealer, right, which holds inventory and um, essentially tries to exceed client expectations while generating revenue. So there's a difference there between the two, right? Our clients are hedge funds, asset managers, pension funds like Bridgewater, like Adam mentioned. So um, you know, I can't really go into details, unfortunately, but essentially we do it on day to day is, uh, you know, you try and, you know, exceed client expectations with, you know, um, the balance sheet that we're holding and, you know, the expectations that they are, you know, looking to fill on our side. So it, it's, uh, it's a happy medium between generating revenue and exceeding those expectations in a nutshell. All right. Next question here, number 10, trading psychology. Could you give us a glimpse of your trading mindset? or your mindset or your uh, psychology when trading? How do you identify over trading? And how do you identify when you start trading on emotion rather than technicals or fundamentals? Yeah, sure, that's a great question. I think we touched on this in the, in the front webinar as well. But um, I think, you know, first and foremost, you, you have to try and have emotional intelligence, right? That's, that's the key to a, a great trader versus a poor one, right? So, I mean, you have to, Determine price forecast. You know, if, if you like a specific company, uh, put your value on it. You know, if it's currently trading at seventy, you believe that it's valued at eighty. Great, buy it and then hold it until it's close to that point, um, and then sell it. Right, take your take your uh, gain. But at the same time, you need to have you know your limits, right? So you need to put in limit orders. You know, if you you're, right, if you're holding at seventy and you you don't want to lose any more than sixty two, sixty three, then you know cut your losses and then reassess. Right, put a new value on it or you look elsewhere. Right. I think that's that's the most important thing from a psychological perspective, and also you know you have to try and be as as you know least biased as possible, right? And um, you know if you know you, your grandmother and your parents, you know they love Walt Disney, you know the, the worst company that you can invest in probably would be Walt Disney, right? Because you're emotionally attached to that. Company. You want to try and find companies that you know that are maybe new to you, or um, you know reassess the fundamentals and understand that you know I can get out of that my limit or I can get out of my price target. Um, you really want to have those in place and you want to stick to them or try your best. Um, you really, again, you, know, you want to tr never try and catch a falling knife, right? That's a great way to continuously lose money. Um, you want to, if, if you, you come to your, you know, your limits, you want to really try and put another value on that company, right? You don't want to you know, say, all right, you know what, let me give you another day. Another no, you want, at that point, you need to reassess, right? So you need to be psychologically strong and emotionally strong when you're in this business, because that's what's going to separate you know, the weak from the strong. All right, question number 11. This one is exceptional. What is your opinion on Mr. President Trump's trade war? And do you agree with him that it would be good for the economy? Or do you think it'll look like 2002 when former President Bush tried it? Um, no, uh, <laughs> no, it would not be good for the economy. Um, it would raise prices that consumers would ultimately pay for. Uh, it would it would reduce trade across the board. Tariffs have a propensity to do this, uh, you know, as do quotas. Um, and but you know there is some light at the. End. That's because this isn't going to happen, and the reason why it's not going to happen is because President Trump's um, key. Uh, trade advisor has already said that you know no one in Congress is really working on. Um, 
President Trump's economic advisor, Gary uh, is is pretty close to resigning because and uh, President Trump really likes uh, Gary Cohen. He came from Goldman. Uh, Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin uh, came, also came from Goldman. Um, and the Chinese are taking this with a grain. And the reason why the Chinese government is is taking this with a grain of salt is simply because of their trade philosophy. Uh, China's trade philosophy uh, is predominantly served by long term. Uh, value and growth, uh, and and they've shifted to sustainability, um, and try, they're trying to become a leader. Um, they're not confrontation, uh, confrontational, um, you know, and, and they seek they seek to have as much harmony in trade as as they do in their personal. You know, so simply because one uh, one individual uh, chooses to be short sighted. Um, and, and confrontational is not going to yield a you know a, a global a global trade war. Now, allies uh, are concerned, and they should be, um, because you know it, the United States is, is the number one economy in the world. Uh, anything that comes out of the U.S. Uh, is normally taken with uh, with some weight. Unfortunately, uh, we we currently have. Uh, again, an individual in the White House that uh, you know can't can't see you know it can't see to tomorrow, and the comments that one makes uh, you know due to his his predispositions in in business, um, you know calling going insofar as to and that they're easy to win um, is is a bit delusional. Uh, but again, the IMF, the World Bank. All of Wall Street um, and and the people at the Department of, of Labor, the Treasury, the Fed, you know, you have to understand that all of these all of these individuals, as well as every central bank um, that we have, you know, they they contain people that are a bit more measured, um, and I, I, I don't I don't actually see a, a trade war starting. All right, question number 12. This is our last question here in two parts. Uh, part one, how often should we analyze the fundamental side of the markets, whether it be one time a year, three to four times per month? What time scale are we looking at? That's a great question. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, this is actually one of my, my favorite topics to discuss, simply because a lot of people don't understand this, and uh, you know, it's something that's really a core competency to investing. You know, really, you could have the most, you could find the company that you feel is the most undervalued company you know, on the market. But unless the rest of the marketplace realizes that that company is undervalued, you know, you're never going to make any money, right? A lot of people supply and demand. Just, just because I'm able to buy Apple at a certain place means somebody's selling it at that point too, right? It's a difference of opinions. So it's really important to understand that um, you need to look at the marketplace from everyone else's perspective, right? You know, there's an old saying, <clears throat> have it in my notes, you know, Wall Street's the only industry in the world people go Rolls Royce to work, but they ask people in the subway, right, what does that mean? It means you have to understand the sentiment around the street, you know, how a consumer's feeling, you know, where is money invested, you know, it's the man that drives these prices. So um, it's going into the next point, it's, it's important to always sentiments can change on a day to day. So really, my, you know, my, my two cents here is to look from everyone else's perspective right it's not necessarily you know should i look at news it's 
to understand the news, right? And understand how everyone else is feeling. So really, you know, read research, understand, speak to people, understand what's going on around the street. How is the consumer feeling versus how is the more you know, sophisticated trader and investor feeling, right? So it's just, it's really street sentiment that's going to drive prices. And it's, you know, those instruments that are going to be driven by those, uh, you know, those sentiments. And it's really important to understand that perspective. So I think that, you know, that definitely answers that question as well. You know, looking at a different view. All right. And part two for that, uh, do you trade on news? Should we trade a crowd's immediate reaction to a drop of news for, let's say, Apple? They drop a new phone. Or should we even just track news at all, just ignore it and trade off fundamentals and technicals alone? It was um, to kind of go off what I, what I just was saying there. Um, you know, it's, it's very important to understand the uncertainty and the understanding of the street itself. So yeah, it is important to look at news. Again, understand the next step that the street's gonna take from that news, right? It's not necessarily trading on news, it's what's the next step, right? How might, you know, firms that have large institutional money see that news, right? That's the thing, right? That's, that's the money that's gonna drive prices. So, I mean, if you're a small guy versus the big one, you wanna be in there before they drive those prices up. Um, from the news sentiment, right? So it's it's understanding what the news is, how it's going to be, where am I invested, and um, understanding forecast in the future of how that news is going to be, where I'm that's, that's how you need to look at it. Yeah, and, and just to add, you know, we I think that the macro, the macro class is a really good idea, but, you know, kind of relating this to the news, John brought, brought it up, you're going to deal with different levels of elasticity too. You know, and, and consumer, you know, consumer income elasticity is going to depend upon and, and consumer, you know, the consumer sentiment, that's all going to relate to, you know, what people are paying for products. And if you, if you wrap that information and that news that, you know, we're, we're telling you guys to, to pay attention to, be cognizant of, um, you know, we'll be able to help explain, uh, you know, what you're going to pay for that gallon of milk. Um, you know, getting down to getting down to the price of last hit, what you're going to pay for that for that new car. If um, you know, if, if we actually do go into a tariff, you know, 25% tariffs on steel, you know, expect to see increases, expect to see, you know, reduction in spending, stuff like that. And um, you can trade and, and as John said, you can get in before that news. You have to you have to be acting as fast, if not faster, uh, than the people on the street, and and they tend to act incredibly. All right, so that is our last question today. Do you have anything to add before we end our Q and A? Oh, I don't have anything. I think that we you know should just uh, follow up with um, with people regarding the the, the macro class, um, and you know. Kind of, we'll hold a. We can hold a poll for that. Absolutely, um, and, we, and we can do that right after we wrap. Uh, actually, we'll set up the poll around. All right, so we'll definitely set that up. We'll have it in chat here in a few moments. Um, but that's all we have for today. So we'd like to thank you for taking your time out of your day and joining us for this live Q and A. Um, we will have another one in a few weeks here. And uh, that's all we've got for today. So without further ado, I'm Aaron from the EI team. We have Adam and John from Cambridge, Massachusetts, signing out. 
and happy trading.